You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of John. Here's Nate. There is something wonderful and awesome about fearlessness. As we turn to John chapter 18, we discover Jesus in this fearless and emboldened state. Here in this 18th chapter, Jesus is going to rush towards the cup that God had given to him, the cup of the wrath of God. He's going to defend his words. He's going to explain his kingdom. And really, in this chapter, we're going to see Jesus in three distinct environments. First of all, we'll see him in the Garden of Gethsemane and the wonderful boldness that he received as he came out of a few hours in prayer to the Father, something we read of in the other Gospels, but we see the results of here in John chapter 18. We're also going to see Jesus standing before the religious leaders in the household of the high priest. And finally, in this chapter, we're going to see Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate. And in his arrest, and in that trial at the house of the high priest, and standing before Pontius Pilate, we're going to see the wonderful fearlessness and courage of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we start out in verse 1 of chapter 18. It says that when Jesus had spoken these words, you know, the words that Jesus had prayed to the Father in chapter 17, but probably including the words that Jesus had spoken to his disciples in chapter 14, 15, and 16. Words of comfort and, more importantly, preparation. Jesus was going to, to the very end, prepare his men and prepare his disciples. That's exactly what he did. And upon conclusion of these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, something David himself, after his betrayal by Ahithophel, had done years previous, crossing the Kidron Valley, leaving Jerusalem. And it says there in verse 1, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Notice here that it tells us in verse 2 that Judas also knew of this particular place or this particular garden. Now the other Gospels tell us that the name of this garden was Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane. And that word literally means the place of the oil or the olive press. There was an olive grove there. And verse 1 tells us that they would enter into it. They would also exit it, indicating perhaps that there was a walled enclosure around this olive grove. And maybe there was a wealthy supporter somewhere who loved the ministry of Jesus and told his disciples, hey, listen, you and your teacher are allowed to, able to spend all the time you want in my garden. But it was a place that they often went to, a place that they would camp during the busy seasons there in Jerusalem. 
And so Judas, of course, had been there previously. And he knew of this particular place. And so he gets a band of soldiers, which I think is hilarious, with their lanterns, their torches, and their weapons. They think they're in for a huge fight and a manhunt. And they go to the place that Jesus is lodging or praying there with his disciples. Now this tells us right off the bat that Jesus was operating in full courage. He didn't go to a, a hidden place. He went to a place that he knew he could be found by Judas. And it says as, as much in verse 4. When it says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Notice that Jesus initiates. He knew everything that would happen to him, and he came forward, John records for us. This, of course, is the gospel in miniature. From his high and lofty seat in heaven, from eternity past, Jesus, knowing, the Son, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. Jesus knew and had counted the cost. In Psalm 22, verse 14 and 15, it says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. In Isaiah 53, again, written years previous to this event, the crucifixion of Christ, it tells us that Jesus would be despised, rejected, acquainted with sorrows, grief, stricken, afflicted, pierced, crushed, that chastisement would come upon him. There would be wounds. He'd be oppressed, afflicted, slaughtered, cut off, go into a grave and be crushed and experience death. Jesus knew exactly what was going to occur to him. And with all of that knowledge, Jesus came forward from eternity into our disaster to save us. And here at this moment as well, in the Garden of Gethsemane, we should not be surprised that the Lord who took that huge step would take a smaller step. And when that moment of arrest came, Jesus stepped forward, knowing everything that would happen to him, and said, Whom do you seek? They answered him in verse 5 and said, Jesus of Nazareth. Notice they couldn't reply, well, we're looking for you. They really didn't know. He wasn't familiar to them as, as he was to Judas. And so they say, we're looking for Jesus, the one from Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. A little and amazing and remarkable turn of events happens here after they report that they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus responds simply by saying, I am he. And when he says it, they all fall back onto the ground. There's power, in other words, in Jesus's words. Now, Jesus had used the reference or the title of deity previously when he referred to himself and said, 
in John chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am. The same title that God gave to Moses when Moses asked, who will I tell the people has sent me? What is your name? He says, tell them that I am the I am. And Jesus had used that title previously, but no one had fallen over and there wasn't that kind of, you know, power in it as far as their experience. They were filled with hatred and anger as a result of Jesus saying it previously. But here, when Jesus responds and says, I am he, they fall over backwards. It seems to me that what has occurred at this moment is that Jesus is coming out of that garden with a ferocity and a courage and a power that is so tangible that even when he speaks, people are falling over in response to the authority and the power that's within him. The other Gospels tell us that Jesus went into the garden really in a vulnerable state. He cried out to the Father and said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. There was weeping. It was a moment that was filled with great agony. But you see a fully different side of Jesus when he exits the Garden of Gethsemane. There is power. And that power extends to even his voice. This surging, swelling strength and ability to go to the cross. And so they fall down and Jesus then says, whom do you seek? They repeat Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I told you I'm he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Even to the very end, Jesus is protecting his disciples. He had prayed back in chapter 17 in verse 12. He said, Father, I've kept them in your name. And, and even now he's keeping and protecting his disciples. He says, hey, let these men go. And even so, he loves to care and protect each one of his children, even today. And so in verse 9, John records and says, This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. Again, from his prayer in chapter 17. Then Simon Peter, he's there watching this whole scene unfold. And having a sword, he drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? So Peter can't really stand it at this moment. And this chapter, as you'll see, is not a great chapter for our man Peter. And Peter here at this moment just is just sort of overwhelmed. And he is a very impetuous man. And he steps out and pulls out one of the swords that the disciples had and chops off the right ear. John was an eyewitness. He saw this whole thing happen and tried to rescue Jesus. You know, it strikes me that there are times that we will sometimes try to rescue the ones that we love. And Peter here was not acting in obedience to the Lord. He should have just left it alone. Had he understood what was unfolding here, he would have been able to trust the Lord. But he took matters into his own hands. And the other Gospels tell us, of course, that Jesus then reached down, picked up the ear, and healed 
Malchus's ear. But here Jesus simply responds and says, Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? I believe that the cup that Jesus is referring to is none other than the cup of the wrath of God. Psalm 75, verse 8, Jeremiah 25, verse 15, and elsewhere seem to allude to this cup that is filled with God's wrath. Isaiah 51, verse 22, thus says the Lord, your God, your Lord, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath, you shall drink no more. And certainly Jesus did. Isaiah 53 verse 4 tells us that he was stricken and smitten by God on that cross and afflicted. Verse 6 tells us that the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And verse 10 says it most bluntly in Isaiah 53, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And so I believe that Jesus was referring to the cup of the wrath of God. He would consume it in his own body there upon the cross. And he was ready now, after being in Gethsemane, to drink it. So, verse 12, the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. <laughs> I like what G. Campbell Morgan says. He says, I've never been able to read that verse without laughing. You know, they, they bind Jesus and all of his ferocity and all of his power and all of his courage. They take him and they bind him. He'd be bound not at all unless he'd allowed himself to be bound. And first they led him, verse 13, to Annas. For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. A reference to something John had recorded way back in John chapter 11. But here you have this interesting thing. They take Jesus to Annas, who's the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. More than likely what we have is a situation where Annas, and you know, as you patch this together with the other gospels, it seems that he had a moment before Annas, a moment before Caiaphas, a moment before the entire Sanhedrin. But Annas was more than likely the true high priest. And Caiaphas was the high priest that Rome had installed that year. The high priest position was supposed to be a position that lasted in perpetuity. You would hold it until death. But Rome didn't like power to be consolidated for that long into one person. And so they would appoint different people. And it seems that they appointed Caiaphas to be high priest that year. But perhaps Annas was the Jewish recognized figure. And so they bring him in, in this text and portion that John is recording to the house of Annas. Simon Peter, verse 15, followed Jesus. And so did another disciple. This is John more than likely referring to himself. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. So more than likely, John, through his father, Zebedee, who was a, a businessman and perhaps had done fairly well for himself, was well-connected there in Israel, 
John is able to go into the courtyard and puts out word and is actually able to get Peter inside the courtyard as well. And the servant girl, verse 17, at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. The first denial of Jesus by Peter. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. So John sees all of this, an eyewitness, and he observes Peter come in and deny Christ once and warm himself at the fire. But he quickly turns his attention back to Jesus in verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. In other words, Jesus is saying, I don't have a secret doctrine. Everything that I believe and everything that I wanted to say, I said very publicly. You know this. I've been unafraid of you the entire time. I've spoken everything I need to say publicly. Verse 21, why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. So Jesus, you know, responds and says, well, listen, you're asking me what I've taught. Why don't you ask around? The word that I've spoken is so obvious and so public. Just go to the public record. Ask people what I said. And when he had said these things, verse 22, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand. And this was, by the way, extremely illegal. Just one of the illegalities of this trial saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Not knowing that Jesus is the great and true high priest. Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Notice how Jesus just goes right after the conscience of this man. He says, listen, if what I've said is wrong, then let's talk about it. Tell me what I said that is incorrect. But perhaps what I've said is right, and maybe that's the reason you've struck me. Or if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And Jesus, even today, by so many, is lashed out against for his words. There are so many who, when they hear the word of Christ, they hate the word of Christ. And for some of us, it's just a portion of what Jesus said. Perhaps someone will agree with the you know, words of Christ that seem to indicate that we should care for orphans, that we should care for the poor, that we should minister to the sick. But when he speaks of himself as the way and the truth and the life and that no man comes to the Father except by him, perhaps there's a bristling at that word of Christ. But then there are those who would receive perhaps that word of Christ. But when they read of caring for the sick and ministering to those who are in need and seeing the lifestyle of Christ, there's a resistance to that discomfort, that uncomfortable stretching out of themselves to minister and to care for others. And there, here you see this lashing out at what Jesus had said. And so Jesus challenges this man. Now Annas, verse 24, then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, verse 25, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself again at that fire. So they said to him, 
You also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, so talk about awkward, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Jesus said, told Peter that he would deny him three times before the crowing of the rooster. And here Peter now for the third time denies Jesus, says, I, I don't know him. I'm, I'm not a part of his camp. I'm, I'm not one of his disciples. I, I don't know the man. He, he was literally cursing here as he made these proclamations. There's anger in his voice. And at that moment, the rooster crows and Peter is absolutely busted. Now, the other Gospels make a bigger deal about this at this particular moment. All of the Gospels, interestingly enough, report this failure from Peter. Apparently, these early Gospel writers felt that this was one of the important details, something that was so massive, an event so large that all of us needed to remember that Peter had failed the Lord, that Peter had denied the Lord these three times, fully and completely. And I think that the gospel writers do this to warn us, in one sense, to warn us that any one of us is capable of denying the Lord. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, Let anyone who thinks that he stands Take heed lest he fall. I think it's a warning against the pride that can creep into our hearts. But I think it's also a proclamation of the grace of God. Listen, if even Peter, who denied the Lord so blatantly, could be restored by the Lord, which we'll see in a few short chapters, then the grace of God can extend to you and to me as well. Now, the other Gospels tell us that at this point, Peter wept bitterly and that the Lord looked upon Peter at this particular moment. And it won't be until chapter 21 that we see Peter's restoration in John's Gospel, but just a powerful and sober moment. Now, After this occurred, it says in verse 28 that then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning and they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So they go to Pilate's headquarters, Pilate's house, and you know they don't have the legal right to actually sentence Jesus to death and so that's why they're going to Pontius Pilate, the Roman ruler of that region and area, the governor of there in Jerusalem. And notice the hypocrisy. I mean, just the total shame here. They don't want to go into this Gentile's house because it would defile them and keep them from being able to eat the Passover, not realizing that they were actually killing the Passover lamb in bringing Jesus, the true Passover lamb, in bringing Jesus to Pontius Pilate. Now, of course, all of us in our sin put Jesus upon that cross. But it is interesting to observe the hypocrisy of these men at this moment. So Pilate, verse 29, went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. 
And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, Pilate knew that they wanted him dead. He, he could see the jealousy. And so when he says, judge him by your own law, there's a little bit of taunting that is going on here because he knows that they cannot sentence him to death. But notice in verse 32 that, that John tells us that overarching this entire moment where it seems as if these religious leaders are absolutely sovereign in that moment or that Pilate is in absolute control of the moment. John records for us that no, behind the scenes and above it all, this was all done to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus, according to scripture, could not be stoned to death. Had the Jews killed Christ without the aid of the Romans, then he would have died by stoning. But the Roman style of death was that of crucifixion. The prophecies in Exodus and in Psalm 34 had forecasted that he could have no broken bones, which of course he would acquire by stoning, but not through crucifixion. Psalm 22 is an explicit description of the crucifixion of Christ. And Jews and Gentiles needed to be involved in this process. And John 3 verse 14, alluding to Deuteronomy 21 verse 23, tells us that he had to be lifted up on a tree, cursed on that tree. So he had to die by crucifixion. And that's why Pilate here at this moment is involved. So Pilate, verse 33, entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? This was their accusation. This was the way that they got Pilate interested. They said, listen, you know, this guy is leading people in rebellion against the king of Rome, calling himself a king of the Jews. And so Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? You know, did someone else put that in your mind or did you come up with this on your own? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Now this was a statement designed initially to calm Pilate's fears. Listen, Pilate, I'm not here for some kind of political insurrection. I'm here to do something that's entirely separate from the kingdoms of this world. It's an invisible kingdom. And, you know, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight and I would not be delivered over to you. Then Pilate said to him, verse 37, so you're a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now many sermons have been preached on that statement from Pilate, but more than likely he was simply 
with a sarcastic tone in his voice saying, listen, I've grown up listening to all kinds of people tell me what the truth is. What in the world is truth? And just an excuse and a smokescreen from this man, Pontius Pilate. And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, a proclamation of innocence. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas, who was a political prisoner. It says now Barabbas was a robber or an insurrectionist. And so they ask for him to be released because traditionally Pilate would do that, release a political prisoner to appease the Jewish people from time to time. And they ask for Barabbas over Christ. Jesus again, courageous in rushing to that cup that was rightfully ours, to take it in himself, in his body, upon that tree. God bless you, and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.